Um, you'll notice that there's a lack of people age 25 and under here this morning. Um, usually we have a much larger contingent. But many of those people are at um, Ottawa Valley Pentecostal Camp. It's Calibrate, which is their um, youth camp weekend. Um, I, got, I was there um, for most of the weekend so far. Pastor Nate and uh, some youth and young adults from our church are the worship team there this weekend, and I was giving them a hand. And so I got home at about 12 o'clock last night. When I left last night, Eric, you can throw the slide up if you want. Um, I left last night at about 10.30. We'd, um, service had started at 7.00. It was 10.30, uh, about 10.20 when I, when I left. Um, the band, had, we'd stopped playing about 15 minutes prior to this. Um, there'd been a time, significant time at the altar. And people were still just sitting in the sanctuary. Just, there was some music playing, and they were just praying and sitting in God's presence. And a uh, great time. Um, there's about 170, 180 kids there this weekend, um, just worshiping and having an encounter with God. And we pray, our prayer is that the encounter is not just something that happens on a weekend, but it's transformational, and that it empowers them and changes them to live their lives differently going forward. It's not easy being a teenager. It's not easy um, growing up in today's world. It's, I don't know if that has ever been easy, but it's not, certainly not gotten any easier. Um, and so we pray for them. Uh, so keep them in your prayers. They were having a service this morning and then another service this evening, and then they're done. So we, and that's, I mean, that's what, that's what these f- services are about. That's why we get together on Sundays, is to be encouraged and empowered uh, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, by, through things like communion and worship, and the reading of God's word and prayer, and the fellowship that we have together that allows us to give us courage to go and live out the way of Jesus in our everyday lives. And that's what we pray for these students, that as they've encountered Jesus this weekend, that that would be transformational, and they would have the courage to live out the way of Jesus in their everyday lives. Um, the other thing I'll mention is um, you hopefully got a connection card when you came in. On the connection card is a list of um, some places that you can volunteer at Parkway. We're all about connecting to God, each other, and our world through real relationships. And we find that one of the best ways to build relationships is to get involved and to serve. I've seen so many people come to our church, and as they, and you know, we try and be really friendly. We have the welcome desk where you can meet somebody and get a swag bag. We have the cafe where you can meet people. You talk to people. But the way to really get to know people at Parkway, there's really two great, great ways. One is to join a real-life connection group. We run those throughout the year um, in three semesters. But the other way is to just volunteer and get involved. And as you serve and you get involved, you're going to meet other people that you serve alongside. You're going to meet the people that you're serving. And it really helps build relationships. So we're looking for people to help out in all sorts of areas. On our first impressions team, which means the cafe area, which means um, our new friends desk, um, as a greeter or an usher, um, we, we could always use people in those areas. And so that's a really easy way that, you know, if you're new here, like even just like, if this is like your second, first, second week here, and you're like, I want to get involved, that's a great place to start. And we'd love to have you get involved and get to know you a little bit. Um, but we're also looking for people to help out with our kids' ministry. So on Sunday morning, we run Monkey Barrel in our nursery. We're always looking for volunteers there. And our midweek programs, Fall's Coming. September's coming, and we're going to be launching um, our Gems Club for girls and our Boys Club for boys, and that's going to be happening on Friday nights here at the church. And we're looking for people who want to be involved in that, who want to invest in the next generation of kids. The kids that are going to be up at youth convention in a few years, but we want to start allowing them to see Jesus and experience Jesus while having fun as well. And so if you're interested in any of those, just take your connection card, 
check the box, drop in um, one of the boxes that you see on your way out this morning, um, or come talk to me, or come talk to um, Sarah at the welcome desk, and we'd love to start connecting you in to serving. Um, and uh, it really is uh, a transformational thing, and so we encourage you to be a part of that as well. Cool? All right. Some of you are with me. That's good. Um, how many of you guys have ever um, watched a Spider-Man movie or um, read one of the Spider-Man comic books or anything like that? Some of you. Good. Good. Um, if you haven't seen it, I'll quickly give you the Spider-Man origin story. So Spider-Man is actual his, his real identity is Peter Parker. And he was just a normal teenage boy until um, he got bit by a radioactive spider like you do. And uh, he got bit by a radioactive spider and suddenly found himself with these powers that made him be able to do the things that a radioactive spider can do. So he could sling webs and he had um, spidey sense and like these amazing reflexes and he can swing through the air and all this crazy stuff. But when that first happens, um, there's a bit of an adjustment period when, you know, you get bit by a radioactive spider and you suddenly develop superpowers. So it takes a little while to get used to it. And he was trying to figure out exactly what it was he was supposed to do with his life. So he, he like any normal teenager, was like, hey, this is a really good way to get attention. I have these superpowers. And so he actually started doing, in the story he goes, and he does some wrestling, and then he, he, he gets on TV, and he kind of becomes a little bit of a mini-celebrity. And it's kind of going to his head. And Peter Parker lives with his uh, Uncle Ben and uh, his, his aunt. And, uh, and because his parents died, because in almost every hero origin story, the parents are dead, because that's just how it works. Um, and so he lives with his uncle and his aunt, and they notice that things are getting a little bit weird with Peter. He's acting a little bit strange, but they haven't figured out exactly why yet. And so Peter gets in a fight at school, and he kind of beats the guy up. And his Uncle Ben sits him down and says, you know, Peter, he gives him this whole spiel about how he, he needs to, to mature a little bit. But he says a line that's become, I don't think it's actually original to Uncle Ben, but it's, it's kind of become a real catchphrase in our society. And he says to, to Peter, he says, with great power comes great responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. And in that moment, Peter kind of shuts him down and says, like, you know, you're not my dad. Don't tell me what to do. And Peter goes, and he goes on TV again. And as he's leaving the TV station, a security guard shouts at him and says, hey, stop that thief, because there's a, a man who's stolen something, and he's running away. And, P- and, and he's dressed as Spider-Man at this point. And so as Spider-Man, he says, you know what? It's not my job to stop criminals. That's your job. And he lets the guy go. He doesn't even try and stop him. And he could have easily stopped him. Later on, it turns out that Uncle Ben has been killed as part of a, a, an attempted carjacking. And Peter Parker gets really angry. He's really upset. He's going to get back at this guy who killed his uncle. And so he chases him down, and he finds him, and he confronts him. And when he confronts him, he realizes the man that killed his uncle was the burglar that he didn't stop because he couldn't be bothered, and it wasn't his problem. And so... In that moment, Peter blames himself for his uncle's death. He could have easily prevented it, but he didn't. And so then, that's why he dedicates his life to crime fighting. Because he realizes that he's been given this power, and he needs to do something useful with it, something meaningful with it. 
He failed to do it once, but he won't let that happen again. And so the motto of his life is, with great power comes great responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. Our text this morning is found in the book of James. We've finally reached James chapter 5, which is the last chapter in James. So we've got a few sermons left to go. A few more weeks of our series in James. We're talking about living what we believe. But James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6 says this. And I'm just going to preface this. Last week I got to tell you that basically don't worry about your life because you're all going to die. You don't know when it's going to happen. So just trust God because we're all dying and it's just going to happen. And that was the upper message I got to give you last week. It gets better this week. Sort of. Not really. Here we go. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. I told you, it's going to be really good, guys. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of your judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire, and you have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. James, he he really pulls his punches, doesn't he? You've condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. If you were waiting for the text to get, like, encouraging, it doesn't. Why, why is James so harsh? Why is he so angry? Now, the book of James is written by James, scholars tell us, by James, the brother of Jesus. And it's one of 66 books in the Bible, in our Protestant Bible. And the way we understand the Bible is that it's like, a, the best way to me to understand the Bible is it's a library, a library of books that were collected and put together. The Old Testament was collected and put together by the Hebrew people. And that was their tradition. And then the early church, they, they collected and put together and authorized the New Testament. And they said, these, these are God's words for the church, for the, pe- for the people. And so James is one of those books. And each one of those books gives a unique perspective on the bigger story, which is God's love for humanity and his plan for redemption and restoration of the whole world. His plan for creation. And so James... When he's writing, he's not writing to us today specifically. There's application for us today, but James has a very specific audience in mind when he's speaking. He's writing to the early Christians. We've mentioned it before, but basically what it was is the, the early Christians were primarily Jewish, and they um, were kind of spread all around Rome. Sometimes because of persecution, sometimes because that's just where they went. And so they found themselves often in new cities with new people that they didn't really know. And they were found themselves in churches, as early Christians, they found themselves in the churches with people that they didn't have much in common with. They often had different backgrounds, different uh, opinions, different perspectives. Um, there's, a lot of ta- there's a lot of different classes 
and even sometimes from different ethnicities within the groups. And this creates a lot of tension. Who's going to be in charge? How are they going to treat each other? And James is very invested in the practical day-to-day practice of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. How do you live this out? in their day and in their place. And so he's, he's constantly talking about real-life things. He's talking about how not to worry about the future. He's talking about how you talk about other people, about controlling your tongue, about the, controlling the wing, things that you say. Talking about how not to fight with others. All these things are just everyday practical things that he's addressing. And they're learning to live out what they believe. And so... Last week, we mentioned that the text was actually directed at merchants within the community, the church, early church community. And, now, and so he addresses them and says, don't worry about making plans for the future too much. Just say, hey, if it's God's will, you're going to do that. But don't, don't have the arrogance to say, this is what's going to happen, because you can't control your own destiny. This week, he turns his attention to a different group of people. There were wealthy landowners within the church, people who owned a lot of land, had a lot of position within the community, a lot of property. And so James is now turning and directing to them. So I'm sure that James had very specific people and specific instances in mind as he writes this text. And so he says this. He goes after them pretty hard. Look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Now, is James saying it's bad to be rich? No, he's not. What he is saying is that wealth in the Bible is a consistent theme. And the consistent theme of wealth in the Bible is that God blesses people with wealth. Sometimes. That, that everything we have is a gift from God. And so if you have material things, if you're rich, if you have material possessions, it's a gift from God. And it's to be treated that way. Everything is a gift from God. Breath, your breath is a gift from God. The fact that you're alive is a gift from God. Everything is a gift. So whatever it is you have is a gift. And so that's how we need to perceive everything. But... The biblical idea of the blessings of God and the gifts that God gives us is that God blesses us and gives us gifts so that we can then in turn take the gifts and the blessings we've been given and give them to other people. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to other people. So for example, when God called Abraham, who is sort of the patriarch of the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, and He calls Abraham and says, follow me. What does God promise to Abraham? He says this, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. God blesses Abraham, calls him out, and gives him a special commission and says, hey, you're going to have all these kids, and you're going to have kids, and you're going to have these descendants, and they're going to be a force of greatness and good in the world. You're going to be a great nation, and I'm going to bless you in that way so that you can bless others. With great power comes great responsibility. And so when it comes to wealth, a biblical perspective is that it's given to people to empower them 
to redistribute that wealth for the good of others and the good of the community. So people are, the Bible sees wealth as something that's given to people so they can give it to others and make the world a better place. So back in the book of Leviticus, we find the story of the people of Israel. And we find um, there, and in the book of Exodus, that they are, were trapped and enslaved in Egypt. For hundreds of years, they served as slaves in Egypt. And so God heard their cries and liberated them, and he brings them out into the desert and teaches them about how it is that he wants them to live. And one of the things that he wants them to do is he doesn't want them to just become like the Egyptian captors that they just escaped from. He doesn't want them to turn into slave drivers and masters. He wants them to handle their wealth and their power and their newfound freedom in a different way. And so much of the early books of the the Old Testament are taken up with these laws and these rules that God gives the Israelites in order to teach them a new way of living, a more godly way of living, a more loving way of living, a way of living that, that doesn't oppress the poor and the marginalized, but cares for the poor and the marginalized. And so one of the ways that God suggests that they do this is through what um, was called like the, the Sabbath year. Pastor Michael talked about Sabbath a few minutes ago. So the idea of there was the day of Sabbath, the day of rest. But God suggested a Sabbath year where every seven years they wouldn't plant anything. It was good for the soil and it was good for them. But then every seventh Sabbath, so every 49 years, was what was called the year of Jubilee. And so you could buy and sell land. You could, if, if somebody needed to, they could sell themselves into slavery if they needed to. They could say, hey, you know, I'm going to be, I don't have any money, so if you pay me money, I will come and work for you and I will be your servant forever kind of thing. But on the 49th year, God said, all the land goes back to its original owners. So if you were a wealthy landowner and you'd bought up all the land, you would have to go back to the families that you originally bought it from every 49th year. And so there was this whole system of economics where, like, depending on how close you were to the year of Jubilee, the price of the land would actually be, like, devalued because you couldn't sell it for the same price because the person was only going to to use it for, um, you know, seven years, 20 years, that sort of thing. Um, But it also meant that all the slaves were set free every 49 years. So if if they took slaves, they were supposed to be liberated. And so this year of Jubilee is this idea that that nobody is supposed to accumulate too much. No one person, there can't be a 1%, because every 49 years, the whole thing resets, and everybody goes back to the land and the level of living that they had before. Of course, this sounds sort of crazy to us, and it sounded equally crazy to the Israelites. And the scholars tell us that, as best they can tell, the Israelites never really nailed the year of Jubilee. Like they, they never, like they tried, but it was so foreign to the economic systems of the world around them. It was so hard to get their mind around the fact that I can build up wealth and then I give it back. That they really struggled to do it and never really implemented it. And in fact, you'll see in much of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament, so the, these Old Testament prophets, they would come and they would say to the Israelites, they would say, guys, 
You've forgotten about the law. You've forgotten God's ways. You've forgotten about the year of Jubilee. What God wants from you is he doesn't want your religious behavior. He wants you to take care of the poor. He wants you to take care of the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. And he wants you to not worry about accumulation, but about redistribution. This is the whole year of Jubilee idea. And so, it's not that being rich is bad. It's that being rich is really hard to be rich in a biblical way. The Israelites found it that way. And Jesus said, in one of the great sort of images in history, he says that it's easier to fit a camel, a big camel, through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to follow in the way of Jesus. You're like, whoa! But that's, it's just so contrary to the way that we are. And James Rex, and so this is, this is the background for everything that James is saying. Is he has these wealthy landowners who have accumulated a huge amount of wealth and who are oppressing their workers, and he's saying that's not at all how you're supposed to live. This is not the year of Jubilee. This is not what God calls you. This, 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 is, this is more Egypt. This is empire. And so he, has, he says that there's four ways that they have failed to live up to their responsibilities. Because with great power comes great responsibility. And he sees that these wealthy landowners who have great power have failed to live up to their responsibilities in four ways. And they've abused their privilege. And so the first way that they've abused their privilege is that they've been hoarding. They refuse to share what they've been given. Verses 2 and 3 say, Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. We talked a couple weeks ago about the scarcity mindset that makes us worried that we won't have enough. And so... One of the ways we deal with that is we, we accumulate and we hoard and, and we hold on to things. And we talked about how John Rockefeller said, well, what is it? one of the richest people who ever lived, and he was asked, you know, well, what, would be, what would be enough money to satisfy you? And he says, just one dollar more. Always wants more. And so we, want, we accumulate and we hold on to things. But James is pointing out the impermanence of all of those things that we hold on to for value. He says, your wealth, It's rotting. It's rotting away. Your clothes that you take such pride in, and in those days, your, the clothes that you wore were a huge symbol of your wealth. And he says, those are getting eaten by moths. If they're not getting eaten now, they will get eaten eventually. You know, these, these things don't last. There's nothing lasting about your clothes. He even says that their gold and silver are corroded, which is interesting because the whole point of gold and silver is that they don't corrode. They don't rust. But he's, he's pointing out even gold and silver, the things that seem indestructible, those, those are going to go too. They're just as impermanent as anything else. And he has this vivid line about that the, the gold and silver is eating away your flesh. They're eating away your flesh. He's, he's saying that these, these things are poisoning you. Your, the wealth that you have held on to and accumulated is poison to you. 
And it's really interesting that he says, the corroded treasure that you have will testify against you on the day of judgment. In those days, it was very common that if you had a lot of money, you could just buy your way out of a court settlement. You could bribe a judge, you could make a payment, and then you wouldn't, you wouldn't get in trouble for the things that you did. And so the law didn't necessarily apply equally to those who were poor and those who were rich. Things were very different back then. Um, and so it did that, but he says, well, the thing that's allowed you to escape and have an easy, escape judgment and have an easy life so far will actually be the things that testify against you on the day of judgment. It's going to be the possessions that kept you out of jail that people will point to, that God will point to and say, that's the thing that's going to get you in trouble. The second thing that James accuses them of is accuses them of exploiting. They have failed to care for those who have less. Verse 4, For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay, the cries of those who harvest your fields and have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. And so they have these workers who have been placed in their care. And most workers were working day to day. They would get paid on a daily basis, and so they would, get, they would work all day, get enough money to, to last, buy food for that day, and then they'd go back to work and do it again tomorrow. And James is saying that, the, that these workers who are so dependent on these wealthy landowners are getting cheated out of their money. And so we're not sure if that means that they weren't getting paid at all, if they were just getting paid a portion of what they were supposed to be getting paid. But whatever it is, it's clear that these wealthy landowners were prioritizing profit over people. They had the money. They just were cheating these workers of it so they could have more. These people who had so little, they, they, they just didn't care about the impact that, that would have on their life. And so to, to protect their bottom line, to protect, to keep as much money for themselves as possible, they would actually cheat their workers out of their pay. And I love that it says that God has heard, that the Lord of the heavenly armies has heard the cry of these people, these workers in the fields. Because I mentioned the Exodus story of slaves in Egypt earlier, and when God talks to Moses and says, hey, we're going to get these people, we're going to get these Israelites out of Egypt, we're going to set them free of slavery. He says, I've heard the cries of my people. So when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, God hears their cries because of their oppression. And what he says to these, and what James is saying to these wealthy landowners is, God hears the cries of your workers. And what he's saying is he's saying that you guys are exactly like the Egyptians. You're exactly like the Egyptian slaveholders. You were called to be different, but you are acting just like them. This is not jubilee. This is exploitation. And this leads to the third thing that James says, third responsibility that they failed at. Consuming. Their personal pleasure is their priority. In verse 5 it says, You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. These wealthy landowners have invested in the good life. After all, they've earned it. They've worked hard. They've made good financial decisions. They've saved and accumulated and invested. They've made their money work. 
and now they're going to enjoy the fruits of their labor. They're going to enjoy the spoils that come to them from their position and their privilege. And so every good thing they need, they need the finest linens, they need the bigger house, they need the latest and the greatest, the best food, the best vacations. And their question, their the way that they see the world now is not about what can I do for others, but what can I get out of this? They aren't thinking about how they can be a blessing to others. They're thinking about how they can bless themselves and live in luxury, it says. Satisfying your every desire. There's nothing they don't, that they will let themselves go without. And they've justified it. They've said, you know, I've earned it. I've worked hard. I deserve this. And everybody else could accomplish this too if they just did what I did. But they pay no attention to the needs of their workers who are living day to day. Well, they are enjoying the good life. And there's this just incredible image that James gives, where he says, you have fattened yourself up for the slaughter. He basically says, you guys are like cows. And you're just, and, and you're just eating and taking it all in, and you're growing so big. And the only thing that that's good for is that you'll make a better hamburger. The fourth thing James says, he's, James is so nice. He's really just such a kind, sweet guy who has, you know, just, just doesn't really speak his mind, you know? I mean, he just, you don't really know what James is thinking. The fourth, fourth thing he says is that they are harming others. Their actions have resulted in suffering. Verse 6, you have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Now, scholars aren't sure if what James is getting at here is that they have literally condemned and killed people. They have sentenced people to jail and death if they're actually complicit in murder. But the sense is more not so much that they've directly done this, but that their hoarding of resources, their exploitation of their workers, and their consumption, the way that they live their life, has put other people in precarious positions that has led to their suffering and to their death. That they have taken away, in some cases literally, food off of the tables of other people and caused them to starve through cheating them out of their wages, through taking what, doesn't, what, what they could give to others, but they've kept it for themselves. And so whether it's directly or indirectly, we see that these people are innocent people James says, that the, the people who are suffering are innocent. And these are not people who are in opposition in any way to the wealthy landowners. They do not intend them harm at all. But that the choices, the lifestyle that they live, the choices that they're making, the way that they operate their business and their life is causing suffering, pain, and even death to other people in the world that they share. There's a book called The Cost of Free, The Cost of Nothing, 
And it, it talks about how nothing in this world is actually free, that there's always a cost to everything. Somebody gives you a free t-shirt, somewhere along the line, somebody paid for that t-shirt. Perhaps it was the person who gave it to you, the place that they got it from, the retailer, the manufacturer. Somebody somewhere paid the cost. And the argument in the book is that much of the cost of the goods and services that we buy are deferred costs that we in order to get a t-shirt for $5 at Walmart, which doesn't even really pay for the shelf space and the shipping that it takes to get to you, much less the material, the cost of manufacturing, all of that, the labor, that somewhere along the line, somebody or something is getting exploited in order for that to happen. And that's what James is saying is what's happening in some ways with these people. It's that in order for them to have so much... The economics of it means that they're taking it from somebody else and other people are suffering because of it. So James says that they're hoarding, they're exploiting, they're consuming, and they're harming. And he has some harsh words for these these wealthy landowners. And it's easy for us to sit in judgment of them and say, man... Those were some bad dudes. But in our world, in North America, in the global scale of things, we are the wealthy landowners. Studies say that if you own a car, you're amongst the top 10% people, wealthiest people in the world. Did you know that there are more cars owned in North America than there are licensed drivers? There are 2.8 billion people in the world who live on less than $10 a day. And if you make more than $10 per day, you are richer than 80% of the world's population. 825 million people worldwide are malnourished because they don't have enough food. 750 million have no access to clean drinking water, and 25% of the world's population has no electricity. So basically what we're saying is is that if you have food on your table, a roof over your head, 10 bucks in your wallet, and access to a vehicle, you're it. You're it. And not only are we rich, but in North America we consume resources at an incredibly high rate in order to maintain the lifestyle to which we've become accustomed. North America accounts for just over 5% of the world's population, but we use 25% of the world's fossil fuels. The average North American produces 4 pounds of garbage per day. So over the course of a year, a family of 4 produces in excess of 6,351 pounds of garbage. That's the stuff that you don't need. 6,351 pounds of stuff that you didn't need or were done with. 61% of North Americans who have a credit card spend more to pay down the interest. They spend more in interest on their credit card in a year than the average income is for, 35 country, uh, for individuals who live in 35 countries. 
So 61% of people who have a credit card spend more on the interest on their credit card than the average person in 35 different countries makes in a year. And I realize that as I'm saying this, you begin to, we all begin to feel a sense of guilt. And we say, well, I, it might be true. Maybe I'll argue with the numbers with you, but I don't, I don't mean for that. Like, this is just, this is where I live. This is what happens. And that's exactly right. Is, I don't want to address our privilege this morning. I don't want us to address it as something to be guilty about. I want us to address it as a gift. Because God has not given us our privilege that you and I have, the blessings that you and I here in North America experience, because he wants us to feel guilty. He has given us the blessings that we have because he wants their gift that he wants us to share with others. He wants, he's blessed us so that we can be a blessing to other people. And when we see it as our, when we see our privilege as a gift, as an opportunity, it can change our mindset. So when I think about it, think about it like this. As a parent, I have infinitely more resources than my children do. My bank account's bigger, my income is bigger, all this. I don't see it as a guilt thing that on their birthdays and Christmas, I get to give them gifts. I take tremendous joy in giving them gifts on Christmas. I take tremendous joy in, in making sure that they have clothes and food and all their things are taken care of. I don't see that as something to feel guilty about. Oh, I have so much more and my kids have so little, so I should, I guess, if I have to, I will... No, I take great joy in that. It's, it's, it's pleasure. I know that I have so much that I can take care of them so with the hope that when I'm old and I don't have any money and I'm like in diapers, that they'll do the same for me. Uh, so I'm possibly selfish in that, maybe. But right now I'm doing it because I'm nice and I take joy in it. I have the great power and so I have a great responsibility. And we've been given this gift because God wants us to leverage our privilege on behalf of others. I came across a great quote by a pastor named Kyle James Howard. He's an African-American in the U.S. And this quote is about white privilege, but I think it applies equally to economics and to the fact that we should not feel guilty about the privilege that we have, but should instead see it as a gift that we can use on behalf of others. So... If you need to, just replace the word white privilege with like wealth, and it'll work for you too. But it works either way, and it's a great quote. He says, The problem with the term white privilege is in how it is typically communicated, in how it is typically communicated, is that if it explained incorrectly, it conjures up white guilt. It leave, leaves whites who seek unity with their black brethren, feeling the same way blacks do in regards to their skin color. I didn't ask for this. Why was I born with something that alienates me from others? This is not how white Christians should understand white privilege at all. White privilege for the Christian is a providential benefit of God that when properly stewarded, allows for white Christians to stand uniquely and promote social justice and ethnic reconciliation in a way that others can't within a prejudicial society. In God's providence, he has chosen to give certain groups of people within the church, the majority group, Privilege within society. The fundamental question is how will the privilege be stewarded? Will it be used for self-advancement or for kingdom advancement? When white Christians come to understand that white privilege is not something they need to deny, but rather embrace and steward, they become chief ambassadors against racial strife and greater ministers of reconciliation. 
And so, with that type of privilege, he's saying, it's not a curse, it's not something you feel guilty about, it's an opportunity. God has actually given you this so that you can be a voice, so that you can use that position to benefit others in a way that they could never do for themselves. In the same way, your wealth is the same thing. Hey, I have this. I've been given this gift. I can use it to help people in a way that they can never help themselves. So like Abraham, whatever blessing God has given to us, big or small, God has given it to you for the purpose of blessing others. You are not simply a recipient of God's gifts. You are a conduit for God's gifts. As Christians, Pastor Michael referred to this earlier, we see God at work trying to restore and redeem all things in the world. And the cool thing about that is that God invites you and me to participate with him in that. To be co-workers with him in his project of redemption. As Scott Dannemiller writes, My prayer today is that I understand my true blessing. It's not my house, or my job, or my standard of living. No, my blessing is this. I know a God who gives hope to the hopeless. I know a God who loves the unlovable. I know a God who comforts the sorrowful, and I know a God who has planted the same power within me and within all of us. What a gift that is. What a privilege it is to know the resources we have, our time, our money, our talents, our possessions. All those things have been given, us to, to, given to us by God so that we might partner with him, him in his project of redeeming and restoring the entire world. And he invites us to do that and says, hey, I've given you the resources. In some ways, he's like, I've given you this superpower. You're like Spider-Man. I've got this superpower, whether it's my wealth, my influence, my privilege, whatever it is that you've been given, your talents, any of those things. God says, I've given those to you so that you can be a partner with me in restoring and redeeming the entire world. So how should we steward this gift that we've been given? Four things quickly. First thing, the first way that we can use our great power responsibly is to build habits that help us move from hoarding to helping. You may say, like, I actually, you may just be a student just starting out or early on in your life and you haven't developed much personal wealth yet. You say, well, like, well, I don't really have any money. But the habits that you start today, the grooves that you get into today become the ruts that you are stuck in tomorrow. And so the way that you handle your money and your finances and your privilege today is going to be the way that you do that tomorrow. When you have a little bit, it's the same way as you'll do it when you have a lot. And so you need to develop habits that help you to break out of that cycle, to develop new grooves to get into. One of the things that, and I'm, I'm not perfect at this at all, but one of the things that we've really... Um, it's really helped Sarah and I is this idea of decluttering and of, of, of getting things out of our house. So multiple times over the past couple of years, we've went through our house and just said, we are going to give away 10%, 20% of what we have. Because it begins to accumulate and we just say, hey, we can't accumulate this, we need to give it away. So I used to have probably 60 shirts in my closet. Legitimately, 60 shirts. I now have it down to about 20. Which is still a ton of shirts. But it's less than I had. And it's a practice and a habit. And then we, we will often 
go through seasons where we say for every item we buy, we have to buy, give away two things that are similar to that. We've, went, we've done um, spending fasts where we've gone months at a time without spending anything except for necessities. The idea of tithing, that you give a percentage of your income to the church on a regular basis, is a way of building a habit that says, my money isn't really mine, it's God's, and so I'm going to give it back to him. So we build habits. The second thing is we need to buy into community. They were able to exploit these people because they didn't really know them and they didn't really care about them. And so when you're in community, it changes the way you handle your money. In Acts 2, it talks about how everybody um, in the early church had everything in common. They had a different way of economics where they would share everything. And so if they were rich, they would put it all in. If they were poor, they put it all in and they would just share it. Everybody knew what everybody's financial business was. I live in a house right now um, myself, my wife, my three kids, Pastor Michael, and my mom, Hope, and um, my sister and brother-in-law, we all bought a house together. And as part of that, we had to share our finances, and we, um, we, we pay bills in community, we do groceries in community, and things like that. And it's really interesting that some of it is set up where we split things equally, and then sometimes things are split based on who has the most income and who's able to pay the most. And so... It's not always about fairness. It's about caring for one another. And that keeps us from exploitation. So that, the, the idea there is, is to begin to talk to people. Find people who can keep you accountable for your money. Find people that you can begin to share your life with. Find people that you can begin to, to, to open up yourself to. Because money can kind of become a really personal thing and we can get trapped in it. The third thing I'd say is that we need to budget differently. What if generosity was the first thing you budgeted each month, not the last thing? What if you said, here's the time and money and resources I have, and the first thing I'm going like, to determine I'm going to do with it is this, and that's stuff that I'm going to give away. And then everything else I'm going to plan out from there. Not, okay, I need to do all of these other things, and then whatever's left over, that's the stuff that I'm going to give. We need to budget differently. I know people who actually um, have said, hey, this is how much we need to live. Everything we make above that, we give away. It keeps them from this idea of accumulation. And so, of our time, if we started with, hey, these are the things that I want, these are the causes and the organizations and the people that I want to invest in, and I want to give my time and energy to. We start there and then work our way out from there. Budget differently. Last thing, is we need to bring jubilee to others, move from harming to healing. In a lot of ways, this involves educating ourselves about the impact that our lifestyle has on other people. Um, and I can't get into all of that today. But to begin to think about where does our spending go? Why do we buy the things that we buy? Where does the cost actually get paid? We need to bring jubilee to others by by actually finding organizations, churches, people that we can, can specifically invest in. And so I would say this. I would say, think of one person or organization that you care deeply about and how can you help that flourish? How can you practice Jubilee in your own life? Who is it that you can help liberate from debt? Who is it that you can help give a, a fresh start to? 
Who is it that you can give an opportunity to, even if they haven't quite earned it yet? Who can you bring Jubilee to? But the key to all of this is to see everything as a gift. A gift that has been given to us so that we can give it to others. A blessing that we receive so that we can go and bless others. We don't, feel guilt. we don't need to feel guilty about the privilege that we have. We need to see it as an opportunity. And you may say, I can, Eric, I can barely pay my bills. I don't feel very privileged. And I get that. And I know that when we talk about in the grand scale of things, we don't, you, don't, you don't pay bills in third world countries. You pay bills here, and I get that. But there are other types of privilege. If it's not financial, there are other types of privilege. We mentioned white privilege a second ago. What are, and, and, and I'm not going to get into all of that this morning, but what is it that you, what are the opportunities that you have? What are, the, what are the blessings that God has given you? No matter how big or small they may be, what is it that you can do to steward the blessing that God has given you? Because with great responsibility, sorry, with great power comes great responsibility. And we, as a church and individuals, have been given great privilege. I'm going to close with a quote and then invite you to pray with me. Ann Voskamp says, We aren't where we are to just peripherally care about the people on the margins. The exact reason why you are where you are is to risk everything for those being oppressed out there. You are where you are to help others where they are. The reason your hands are where they are in this world is to give other people in this world a hand. Because God forbid you don't get a roof over your head, food on your table, and the safety and security of no bullets shattering your windows because you deserve more. You only get all of that so that you get to serve more. With great power comes great responsibility. And may each of us consider what we've been given and how God is calling us to use it. So I'm just going to invite you to close your eyes for a second and just take a second to think about what it is that God has blessed you with, to thank him for it, and then ask him what it is that he is calling you to do with it. How is, how is he calling you to break the patterns of hoarding and exploitation and consumption and harm that we often cause indirectly and unknowingly? What are the habits that he's calling us to build? What are the communities that he's calling us to form? This church is a community where we invest our money and we we share and we do tremendous things with it. What What are the ways that God is calling us to use the privilege that he's given us? How can we be jubilee for other people? As Jeff comes to close the service, I invite you to stand with me and we're going to read this prayer together. And so let's read this together. Eternal Word, only begotten Son of God, teach me true generosity. Teach me to serve you as you deserve, to give without counting the cost, to fight heedless of wounds, to labor without seeking rest, to sacrifice myself without thought of any reward, save the knowledge that I have done your will. Amen.